Hello, and welcome to episode 37 of Sam Explaining Science. I'm Sam. I'm your host. I'll be Sam Explaining the Science. And today we're talking about the ethical practices of science, specifically when it comes to human or clinical research. Let's get into it. Hey, everyone. How are ya? I hope you're doing well. I hope your weeks are off to a good start. I'm sorry that this episode is late. Recently, I've been trying to do like a Friday post. I've been on like a Friday kick. Um, But last week, Friday came and went. And I was like, whoa, I haven't recorded the podcast. That's kind of crazy. So I was like, you know, I'm going to do it the weekend. But then the weekend also came and went. I got carried away. I decorated for Christmas this weekend, which took up a lot of my time, but it was time well spent because it made me very happy. Um, actually, I can show if you're watching on Sam's Planning Science YouTube at Sam's Planning Sci, I'll show you my little Christmas tree. Look how cute she is. So cute. Yeah. I used to be, this is a little bit, a little bit about me. Um, I used to be very anti-Christmas decorations before Thanksgiving. Like, I used to be so angry when I would see people put up their Christmas trees and, like, we haven't had Thanksgiving yet. But not anymore. What happened, you might ask? Um, I grew up. I looked inward. And I realized that, like, if something makes you happy and it's not hurting anybody else, then, like, do it. So that's why my Christmas tree is up in the middle of November. And it might stay up until March. If it makes me happy, I'll keep it around. I'll keep it up all year. Can make it all different holidays. Can make it a Valentine's Day tree and a Labor Day tree. (laughs) Arbor Day. Hello, Arbor Day. It's a literal tree. It's actually not. It's a fake tree. But anyway, you get the point. Yeah. Anyway, these uh, Christmas lights, they make me pretty happy. I don't know. It's just, you know, in a season where the sun sets at like 4.48 p.m., you got to do what makes you happy because otherwise you just get really sad. So my Christmas lights are up, and that's that. And if you don't like seeing Christmas lights out of season – i.e. before Thanksgiving or after Christmas, I invite you to go outside and just take a deep breath of fresh air and then remind yourself that we are all just teeny tiny bags of flesh on a rock that's hurtling through space and time. And then you remember, oh yeah, that doesn't matter. Oh right, nothing matters. That always makes me feel better. So anyway, I'm ranting. I'm rambling. We'll move on. Today's episode, (laughs) we are getting ethical. The title is Let's Get Get Ethical. And it's a reference to that episode of The Office when Michael and Holly give their ethics presentation. And they do that parody of like, is it Madonna? I'm assuming it's Madonna. I should have fact-checked that. I think it's Madonna. Let's get physical. But they say, let's get ethical. And then I stole that quote for the episode that we're doing today. 
So that's just a little peek into what's going on up here. Um, <laughs> but we're going to talk today about ethics in science, because although the science that we do today is as ethical as possible, um, it was not always that way. So today we're going to go over that. How did it get to be as ethical as possible? Because we had to make mistakes in order to learn from the mistakes. So that brings us to today's questions. Or does it? It does, if I can. There we go. That brings us to today's questions. There's more than one question. Um, the questions are, what are historically unethical scientific studies? Why are they unethical? And what has been implemented to prevent it from happening again? And those three questions are going to be addressed for two different cases. So today's going to be sort of like a case study across two different cases. So one of which is the U.S. Public Health Service syphilis study at Tuskegee. And then the second is the Stanley Milgram shock experiment. So we're going to talk about each of those studies, what they were about, what happened during them, um, why they were considered unethical, and what's been put in place since then in order to ensure that that unethical science does not happen again. So the first study that we're going to talk about is the Tuskegee syphilis study, which began in 1932. Uh, its modern name is the United States Public Health Service Tuskegee syphilis study. Um, it started, like I said, in 1932 at the Tuskegee Institute School in Alabama. And the study initially involved 600 black men, 400 of whom had a diagnosis of syphilis, 200 of whom did not. And these men were, I don't even know the right way to say this, they were not recruited in the way that scientists today recruit subjects for their studies um, because typical, like, Modern-day recruitment requires uh, informed consent, which we talked about a little bit in last week's episode, where basically um, the participants, if you're interested in joining a research study, can are, are told what the study entails before they say, okay, yeah, I want to participate. That's giving their informed consent. They're informed about what the study entails, and then they consent to participating. Um, in the Tuskegee syphilis study, this did not happen. These 600 black men were not given informed consent. They did not give their informed consent. Um, and instead, they were just sort of told, they were like collected essentially and told that they were going to be treated for their quote unquote bad blood. Um, so back, I guess, in like the 1930s, we didn't know as much about syphilis as we do these days, particularly for treatments. There was no known treatment for syphilis back in the 1930s. Um, so these men were told that they have bad blood and that the research that was going to be done at Tuskegee was going to help them, help cure them of their, their bad blood. Um, the participants, and I... <laughs> 
I don't think that's the right word because I guess they did participate, but they weren't like, you know, ethically participating. Um, but they were uh, compensated in free medical exams, which was part of the study, right? Part of the study, they were given test treatments and experimented on essentially. And they were given these test treatments and you know, blood samples were taken from them and they were given medical exams. Um, but they also were compensated in free meals and also compensated with burial insurance. Um, I should have looked it up uh, and I didn't because I'm not that good, I guess, at what I do. But I, uh, I imagine that back in the day, in the 1930s, like the death rate for syphilis and bloodborne diseases was much higher than it is today. Um, so I assume that's why their burial insurance was compensated. But you think about going into a research study and they say, oh, don't worry, like we'll pay for your, your funeral. I'd be like, why, why did you even say that? <laughs> why are you talking about my funeral? Um, but I guess back in the day that, if, you know, if syphilis went untreated, which it did because there was no treatment for it, um, it could lead to more severe uh, medical conditions that could lead to death. Um, so, right, the participants were recruited, really just told, oh, we're going to experiment on you to find a treatment for your bad blood. Um, and this included treatments for syphilis, but also for... Um, anemia, and fatigue. A little over 10 years after the Tuskegee syphilis study started, um, in 1943, researchers found that the antibiotic penicillin was a safe and effective treatment for syphilis. Um, so I think logically me telling you that, maybe you're thinking, okay, well, that means that the study's over, right? Like they were, they were, were using these men to find a treatment for syphilis and then researchers found a treatment for syphilis. Um, so the study must be over, right? They give them penicillin and then these men are cured and they can go about their lives, right? Um, no, that's not how that happened, unfortunately. Um, the participants at Tuskegee were not offered penicillin uh, to cure them of their syphilis, and instead they were kept at the institute for another 30 years, um, just continuing to do experiments on them, right? Continuing to test treatments and purposefully expose them to high-risk situations essentially and high-risk experiments in hopes that they could develop treatments for different uh, ailments and um, that continued for 30 years after there was a known cure for their syphilis um, which say it with me on three one two three unethical I agree um, so 30 years pass, and I'm not trying to minimize that. 30, it was 
1972 was when it ended and syphilis became available as a treatment or sorry penicillin became available as a treatment for syphilis in 1943 so if i'm doing the math right which i should do because i'm an engineer that's 29 years that's my entire lifetime november of 1972 so 50 years ago this month is when the study ended and it ended because word got out about the neglect and the abuse that was happening to these men in the Tuskegee syphilis study, and an ad hoc advisory panel for health and scientific affairs concluded that this study was ethically unjustified because, this is a quote, the results were disproportionately meager compared to known risks to human subjects involved. Um, so basically, that was a direct quote. You're, you're probably saying, Sam, you. I heard meager and I thought Sam said that. No, no. Um, but basically what that means is that the results that they were finding from their exploratory treatments and experiments were not benefiting the participants enough to justify the risks that they were facing. Um, so that caused, of course, an uproar and for the study to end in November of 1972, as I said. After the study ended, the Department of Health and Human Services instructed the U.S. Public Health Service, USPHS, to provide all of the necessary medical care to the participants and their families. So that included their spouses and partners and their children as well. Um, so this happened, like I said, it ended 1972, 50 years ago. So there are still children of these men who are still alive and are still receiving medical care because their fathers were neglected and abused by this study. Um, just to put that into context for you. Like, I always feel like that's the case when you were learning about history and like crazy, awful things that happened. A lot of times it feels like, oh, well, that was so far away. That was so long ago. And it's like, it was not that long ago. Like we're sharing the planet. People are walking this planet with us who were directly impacted by this. Um, so I feel like that's helpful to put into context. Anywho, um, nowadays, current day, Tuskegee University is the site of the National Center for Bioethics in Research and in Healthcare. So um, if we can think of a, a good thing to come out of this atrocity, um, is that a word, atrocity? That's, that's a word, right? Hold on, let me check. I'm pretty sure it's a word atrocity yeah an extremely wicked or cruel act yeah that's exactly what I meant by it if we're thinking about a good thing that can come out of this atrocity it's that we can learn from it right and say that was so messed up we don't want that to happen again how can we do that and Tuskegee University being the National Center for Bioethics of Research and Healthcare, um, they're doing the work to make sure that it does not happen again to the people 
in Tuskegee and worldwide. Um, this is a study that comes across, uh, that I've come across at least a bunch in my education as a scientist. Um, there are like required courses that I needed to take in my PhD um, coursework to learn about bioethics and make sure that the research that we do is ethical. And the Tuskegee syphilis study is one that comes up a lot because it is one of the worst cases of neglect of ethics in science. Um, but I just wanted to sort of summarize this case study by going over the ethical issues that were occurring and sort of the takeaways and like the progress that we've made since then. So I think one of the first ones that really stuck out to me was the lack of consent to the study and the lack of informed consent to the study. Um, so as I said, these men were not informed of what the study entailed and they did not consent to, are we good? My heater's turning on. Um, <laughs> they did not consent to participating in the study um, that they knew nothing about. So that is obviously an ethical mishap. Um, another ethical mishap is that they, the clinical standard of care was withheld from them during the study. Um, and that's obviously not okay, right? You're, that's a form of neglect, right? Medical neglect. If there are men who have syphilis and they're symptomatic and they're suffering and they're sick and you know, you're withholding something that can cure them of that ailment, of that sickness, um, that's unethical, making people suffer um, for your own scientific research benefit. So obviously that is not okay. Um, two sort of progress points, or I guess things that came out of, came after this study um, that can make sure that this doesn't happen again. One is the National Research Act. This is a, an act in the United States. It passed in 1974, and it requires that agencies like the FDA, which is the Food and Drug Administration, um, the NIH, which is the National Institutes of Health, those types of agencies, they must have um, a, they must have human research regulations in place, and they must have IRBs or internal review board, institutional review boards, um, to review and oversee research with human subjects. Um, and that's just to ensure that we talked about IRBs in the last episode, but IRBs are in place. They're like outside um, agencies, I guess, an outside board that's not close to the science at all. And their only job is to review the ethics of the case and make sure that the participants in the study, their rights and their safety are protected during the entire course of the research study. Um, Something else that came out after the close of the Tuskegee syphilis study is the Belmont Report. And this was something else that I remember learning during my bioethics courses. Um, but essentially the Belmont Report has three ethical principles that guide human research. And those are respect for persons. 
beneficence, beneficence, beneficence. <laughs> English is my first and only language. And at least once, one time per episode, there's a word that gets me. Beneficence, be, beneficial, being beneficial and justice. So respect for persons, beneficial and justice. Those are the three principles that should guide human research, right? So when we're doing, we're designing research studies that require human participants, um, we need to keep these three principles in mind and explain how our study is related to these principles, right? How respect for persons is going to be incorporated into the research design, um, how our research will be beneficial to the participants, how um, our research will be just and fair to the participants. Um, so those are just sort of two examples of how um, post-Tuskegee syphilis study um, regulations and rules have been put into place to ensure that these types of scientific uh, neglect and unethical practices don't happen again. Okay. The second case study we're going to talk about is the Stanley Milgram shock experiment. And I can ramble about this one because this one is, it's fascinating. It's, I mean, it's wrong. Don't get me wrong. It's like not cool but it's fascinating at the same time. Um, so before I jump in, I'll give some historical context. This study happened firstly at Yale, go Bulldogs. Um, Yale just beat Harvard in the game this weekend, so Ivy League champs, but I digress. This study happened at Yale in the early 1960s, which is about 10 to 15 years after the Nuremberg Code was written. So if you've never heard of the Nuremberg Code, let me tell you about it. It's the first international code of ethics for research on human subjects. And it was written in response to the unethical research, in quotes, um, that was being conducted on Jewish people during the Holocaust. So essentially, there was a lot of awful, disgusting things that were done to Jewish people during the Holocaust that were that was passed off as research, right? And in response to those atrocities from happening, um, the Nuremberg Code was written to try to make sure that that doesn't happen again. Um, all the while, mind you, the, the, the Tuskegee syphilis study is ongoing but I digress. Um, so that's the Nuremberg Code, okay? Basically trying to make sure that what happened during World War II would never happen again. Stanley Milgram is interested in this, not in the ethics code. He was really more interested in like, how could this have happened in the first place? How could people do such harmful acts to other people? And does obedience have anything to do with it, right? Is it that people are just obeying 
what they're being told by someone in a position of power that makes them think it's okay to do these tasks that can harm people. That was the whole point of Milgram's shock experiment, um, where essentially he wanted to look at human behavior in terms of obedience. Will people obey someone in a position of power, even if the tasks that they're being told to do can hurt people? Kind of like, exactly like Germany during World War II. Um, so this study, Milgram was really interested in obedience. However, there was some deception involved where the participants of the study were told that it was a study about learning. It was a learning exercise. Um, so keep that in mind as we walk through the experimental design. So each participant of the study came to a separate session where the session had three main characters, three main people. The first was the research participant um, who signed up for the study, and they're thinking, this is a study about learning. This is a learning experiment, right? That's one. The second person was the experimenter, and this was someone who was wearing a lab coat and glasses and had a lab notebook, and he looked very official. And I say he intentionally because it was the 1960s and they didn't think that women could be experimenters and men were more like official. Anyway, before I get myself into a bad mood, let me tell you about the third person. So the first person was the participant. The second person was the experimenter who was like someone on the research team, right? I don't think it was Milgram himself, but it was probably one of his grad students. Um, but they looked very official, okay? The third person was um, another member of the research staff who pretended to be a participant. So essentially, they knew that the study was about obedience, but they pretended like they were joining a learning study, you know? So those were the three. It was the experimenter, and then the real participant, and then the fake participant, the rat, who was in on the whole gig, okay? So when the participant attended the study, they first met the experimenter, who was dressed up very official in a lab coat and glasses and a lab notebook, and then they were introduced to the fake participant, who they were just told was another person who was partaking in the study. Um, and then the participants, the real one and then the fake one, were randomly, air quotes, randomly, wink, wink, um, assigned roles in the experiment. So one role was the student and one role was the teacher. And the way that it's set up, if you're watching this episode on Sam Explaining Science YouTube, hello, welcome. Um, you can see there's a there's diagrams on the bottom of the slide that sort of sort of show the uh, uh, experimental design, where basically there's a student, um, there's a teacher, and then there's the experimenter. The student is set up next door, in the the room right next to where the teacher and the experimenter are, and the student is set up where there's electrodes 
on their body and they're strapped into a chair. It's giving electric chair is what it's giving. Um, and that's where they sit. And then in the next room over, right next door, the teacher has a setup and then the experimenter sits near the teacher. So the experimenter, remember, is the one in the lab coat. And the teacher is the actual research participant that they're going to be observing and, and looking at their obedience. And then the learner, or the student, rather, who's in the other room is the rat, is the one who's like in on the whole gig, okay? So the teacher sees the student get set up into these electrodes and strapped to a chair, and then goes into the next room where they're set up has a list of pairs of words and a box. And this box, they're told, is hooked up to the electrodes that are connected to the student. Um, and the box has switches um, where each switch corresponds to a shock of a certain intensity. And the intensities range from 15 volts uh, to over 400, 500 volts. And um, that really means nothing to me, but from my understanding, 15 volts might be like a little static electricity shock, and then like 400 volts, you're deceased probably. Um, it's like very extreme. It's labeled on the box, so the website says, that um, 15 volts is a slight shock, and 450 volts is severe shock, right? So the, the teacher sees the range of shock levels and um, they're, they're like aware of like, this is a little shock, this is a severe shock, okay? The learning study requires the teacher to read the pairs of words aloud and then requires the, the student to repeat the words back to the teacher as like a sort of memory game of sorts. But every time the student gets a pair wrong, incorrect, the teacher has to press one of the buttons on the box and shock the student. And with each consecutive incorrect guess, the shock has to increase in intensity. And they have to say, each time the student gets a question wrong, they have to say 15 volts and then hit the 15 volt button. And then if they get another one wrong later on, they'll have to say 20 volts and hit the 20 volt button. And they'll have to increase each time the student gets a question wrong. And then the experimenter who's sitting with the teacher is watching all this happen and sort of explaining, okay, the student got this one wrong, so you have to shock him now. Um, so the experimenter is essentially telling the teacher what to do and if the, the student needs to be shocked, okay? Now, mind you, the learner, the student, is in on all of this, right? He works for the research lab that's studying obedience. So he's not actually gonna get shocked. He's just, he's, a, he's literally a paid actor, okay? He's gonna sit there and purposefully get questions wrong and pretend to get shocked. And then what the experimenter is gonna do is see how the teacher, the person, the participant who's actually participating in the study, um, see how they react and what they do, what actions they take, right? So as the study progresses, the student is getting more and more questions wrong because they are supposed to, and the teacher is, you know, administering the shocks. And at first, they're small shocks, right? 
Um, but with more and more incorrect guesses, the voltage is getting higher, right? So it goes from like 15 to 30 to 50 to 150 volts, right? And at 150 volts, that hurts, right? That hurts the, the, the student. So at that point, they're saying, please, can we stop? Please, this really hurts. Can we stop doing this? I'm done. Like, I'm in so much pain. Can we please stop at 150 volts? And then the teacher might turn, if the teacher has a soul at all, the teacher might turn to the experimenter and say, hey, can we stop? Like, this guy's really in pain. Can we stop? The experimenter would say one of four prods to get the teacher to continue. And it was these four sentences. Please continue. The experiment requires that you continue. It is absolutely essential that you continue or you have no other choice but to continue. So essentially, the teacher's like, this guy's in a lot of pain, can we stop? The experimenter is saying, you have no choice but to continue. And then the teacher, because they're being told by this person of authority to continue shocking and harming another person is going, okay, I have no choice. And they keep pressing the buttons with every wrong answer that the student gives. By 285 volts, the student is, um, quote, screaming in agony. This is from the article. Um, agonized screams happen at 285 volts. And then by 330 volts, the learner becomes, or the student becomes totally silent. So for a minute, when there's no response from the student, the teacher thinks, holy shit, I killed somebody. Sorry, that was a curse word. But you know what? Go back to the cursing episode. Because cursing can help you, can help improve your attention. So if you were zoning out, I just said shit, and you were like, what did she say? I said shit. Um, the teacher goes, holy shit, I just killed somebody. You know? And then the experiment ends, <laughs> essentially, because the person thinks that they're dead, and they're like literally in distress. And then... After the experiment ends, the teacher, who's the actual participant, is debriefed. Where basically, they're taken to the side and say, hey, pranked you. We got you so good. You should have seen the look on your face, but we got you so good. They're basically told, this was not a learning experiment. This was an obedience experiment. And we wanted to see how people obey people in power, even if what they're doing is hurting other people. So that was the overall experimental design, right? They were told that it was learning study. There was, there were, uh, you know, teacher, student, the student was penalized by shocks every time they got a wrong answer, except they weren't actually. So the teacher kept administering the shocks, even if they didn't want to, they were prodded by the experimenter and they continued to go on, even if they showed at first some hesitation. They still listened to the person in power to continue harming this person. Um, and then after the person no longer responded, they were debriefed and basically said, here's what we were actually doing. This guy's fine. You can see, pull back the curtain. He's totally fine. He's probably chilling. If he's a grad student, he's taking a nap. I can tell you. He probably, he's silent because he took a nap. As someone who's been a grad student for Five years, he was napping. But anyway, 
That's the whole experimental design. Let's talk about the results. What did they get from this? Milgram and his colleagues actually found that the participants, every single participant, continued to 300 volts. So let me remind you that at 150 volts, the learner was saying, can we please stop? The student was literally asking to be let go, right? And you know, at that point, the prodding started of saying, you must continue, you must continue. At 285 volts, there were agonized screams and every participant still continued to 300 volts. Two thirds of the participants, so 66% of the participants, went all the way to 450 volts because they were told to, because they were told to continue. It's essential. It's, the experiment requires that you must continue. It is absolutely essential that you continue. So they continued all the way up to 450 volts. That's 66%. Two out of every three participants continued all the way up to 450 volts because they were told to. So even when they knew they were causing pain, even though they weren't actually, even when they knew they were causing pain to another person, they continued because somebody in a position of authority told them to, and they agreed. As Milgram put it in one of his write-ups about the study, he said, authority won over moral imperatives against hurting other people. So it just shows how humans behave in the presence of authority and how we lose moral imperatives, we lose our morality when there's someone of authority telling us to do something bad. And I mean, I, I think it's way more complex than that, right? I think he had many versions of this study as well. Like I remember like this was done at Yale and then I think he did another experiment like off of Yale's campus and like the participants didn't know that it was Yale and less people went all of the way, like maybe implying that less people had less allegiance to an authority member that wasn't like a big name. Um, but I don't know, it, it brings about a really interesting concept of like, why, why are people the way that they are? Why do people think it's okay to hurt other people? And it's because, well, maybe some of them are under this influence of authority. Not that that excuses their behavior at all. It doesn't. Um, but I don't know. It just gives some context, I guess, to the situation. So let's get to the ethics, the takeaways from this study. So even though the people obeyed the, mm, how do I want to say this? During the study, no one was physically hurt. Right. But while the study was happening, the participant did not know that. Right. The participant was sitting in a different room under the impression that the person in the room right next door to them was dead. Right. If they were not responsive, they could have died. And it's because that person, the participant, is pressing buttons that directly, so they thought, was hurting that person. So anyone with I don't know, ethics, anyone with a conscience would say like, 
I'm killing this person. Like I'm doing something wrong. And it causes some psychological stress. And although this distress might have went away when they turn the corner and they see that this person is fine, it doesn't take away from the unnecessary stress that was put upon them during the study, right? And even though they didn't actually hurt anybody, it's still pretty messed up. And, you know, they're, of course they felt relief to be like, oh, thank God I didn't actually kill anybody. But there's some, like, long-lasting effect there, right? I'm sure they... I'm sure they didn't leave the psychology building and like go, oh, well, at least I didn't kill somebody. They were probably having like a, an identity crisis of like, do I have the potential to kill somebody? Because like I could have killed that man. So I think there's a lot of like psychological things that could have come from this study that when we think about the benefits versus the risks of the study, is it worth it? Right, these participants underwent a lot of distress for what benefit to them, I guess is the way to think about it, right? So that's obviously an ethical issue. Another ethical issue is that they were signed on to the study thinking that it was something completely different, right? They really thought like, oh, this is going to be a learning study. I'm going to, you know we're in the best ways to improve my memory or whatever. And it was not that at all, right? They were completely misled and completely deceived, right? So that's another issue that like nowadays with informed consent, like we talked about before, participants need to be told this is what we're studying. Like we can't completely you know, mislead people when we're trying to recruit them to our studies. We need to tell them, um, you know, we don't have to tell them everything because, of course, especially for psychological experiments, that could change the way that people approach the study. But you can't leave out information. You can't put them in a position where they can't give informed consent about what they're going to entail in the study. And that's sort of addressed when we talk about informed consent. So that's that. All right. Let's get into the takeaways from this episode. I think I rambled a lot this episode, but I think especially the Milgram shock experiment, I just, it's such an intricate design and like evil. Don't get me wrong. It's like really messed up, like putting those people in those positions, but like kind of fascinating. Maybe that makes me evil. Probably. Anyway, um, <laughs> the takeaways from today's episode are just to sort of emphasize the importance of ethics and science and that we, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of mistakes have been made in scientific ethics, right? A lot of studies have been done that are completely unethical or unethical, unethical, one of those. Um, not ethical. That's what I want to say. A lot of studies were not ethical, right? And it, and that doesn't make it okay, but at least we can learn from those mistakes and, and put regulations in place in order to make sure that, that people, especially human subjects, are not put at risk or put into danger or neglected or um, you know, put into unnecessary distress um, without proper 
reward or benefit to them, right? Um, so these are like things that are constantly thought about before the experiments are taking place, right? Last week we talked about clinical trials and how we needed to know the experimental design. We needed to know that and have it approved by the IRB, the um, Institutional Review Board, before the experiment even takes place. So we need to make sure that our experiment is ethical for people or for animals if we're doing animal research before the study starts. And that's something that we do all the time as scientists. Um, yeah, and then just, I guess, a constant consideration and evaluation and regulation of ethics in scientific research and scientific experiments is very important as well. Um, just to make sure that, you know, we don't slip up on things. We are not neglectful. We're not, um, you know, endangering people or animals in ways that are not uh, acceptable. And making sure that we're constantly evaluating what is acceptable, right? Um, I think it's also helpful, going back to the clinical trial episode, that we have constant analysis of our data, right, to make sure that, you know, our, if we're looking at, you know, experimenting with a potential treatment, like if we were doing the Tuskegee syphilis study, um, if we're looking at a potential treatment and, you know, somebody else comes up with a treatment that actually works, we should evaluate how effective our treatment is. And if it's not as effective, then we should, you know, stop the study and give the participants that need it the effective treatment. You know, I'm still rambling. This is a very rambly episode. If you've made it this far, welcome to the world of my rambling brain that never shuts off. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, it's something that's important and uh, constantly in the minds of scientists, especially as we try to formulate and conduct scientific research. Okay. All right. That is all for this week's episode. Please don't forget to follow, rate, and review the podcast wherever you're listening. You can also subscribe on YouTube, please. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok at SamSplainingSci, so connect with me there and ask questions if you'd like. You can also submit your questions at samsplainingscience.com slash ask. So if you have anything that you want Sam Splain to you, ask away. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope you learned a little bit and laughed a little bit, and I will talk to you next time. Bye.